Hello everyone, my name is Lauren. And I'm Cooper. And we're the Thrive Initiative. We host meaningful discussions with professionals in the fields of mental health and neuroscience. We hope to spark conversations surrounding mental health, provide teenagers with resources and self-care tools, and inspire a generation of mental health advocates. Welcome to our podcast. Just a quick reminder that the information included in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional care. If you feel that you need more assistance or support, please check out thriveinitiative.org for resources and referrals. Today, I am joined by founder and trauma researcher and coach Ruth Cooper-Dixon. She is the founder and managing director of CHAMPS, a mental health consultancy providing resources and services to promote well-being in the workplace. Ruth is a positive psychology practitioner and has received an MSc in applied positive psychology. This upcoming fall, she will begin working towards her doctorate in existential psychotherapy and counseling. So without further ado, um, this is Ruth, and I'm really excited to get into things. That was a great introduction. I like that introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We are so happy to have you. Um, I know I gave a broad overview, Mm -hmm. but could you please explain um, in a little more detail what you do in the mental health field and what drove you to engage in this work? Okay. Well, the reason I ended up in this field, because that's probably easier to start there, is because five and a half years ago, I had my own lived experience of mental ill health. And I'd always had panic attacks right up until I remember having my first probably when I was about 19, when I was in the workplace, um, because I, I went after I finished school Um, I went to what you would call college, but I did it via part-time. So I worked full-time and um, I remember having panic attacks back then. And I had them for two decades, but really didn't talk about them. Thought there was something that was wrong with me. thought they were a weakness. um, Thought it was me being silly. I wasn't being confident enough, which was quite in polarity with who I am as an individual. I'm very chatty, very extrovert, very, very confident in lots of ways. Um, but so it didn't really, it didn't really make sense that I had these feelings of panic and and real physical um, response as well to panic attacks. I get very sweaty very, very quickly. I get have had disorientation and disassociation and hyperventilation. And um, it was because I'd had a very public breakdown if you want to call it that or I call them meltdowns but I had a very public meltdown in my in my workplace five and a half years ago which went which was through um it was triggered by um I was going through a relationship breakup and whilst that was happening throughout the 2015 I was telling everyone I'm fine I'm fine I can cope with this like I've got it sorted and was throwing myself into work as a distraction. I was throwing myself into exercise, which is good, but I used it as an unhealthy, it became an unhealthy coping mechanism. I was eating really healthily, which became an unhealthy coping mechanism. Like everything that which I've now discovered is, is on a continuum. No things are necessarily good or bad. It's, it's kind of how you're using them. And um, yeah, and, and I, I basically had this meltdown, as I called it, at work and was off work then for a number of months. And I went to see a therapist. I was, I was actually put into therapy very quickly. Very fortunate here in the UK at that time. I was able to see somebody and they diagnosed me with panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder so there was a bit of a light bulb moment because it made me realize oh my goodness what I've been going through all my life is actually I'd had all these coping mechanisms and strategies to deal with it but it was really the stress and the burnout um, that triggered really a full a full mental health diagnosis and that put me on a journey of recovery. And that's the journey I've been on for five and a half years. Um, And because I was in the workplace at that time, I 
wanted to choose to be quite open about the reasons I'd been off work because I was out of work for a couple of months. And I found that people were very fearful or very nervous about having a conversation about why I'd been off, especially for even people I worked with. I understood that. I think I had the self-awareness to understand it wasn't about them not caring. It was actually about the fact that, you know, I'd had this very public meltdown in the office. So they probably saw the worst of it or they did see the worst of it. So they probably didn't want to kind of have that conversation, but it was still very much something that was very um, stigmatized. So, you know, I was just told, my clients were told I was out of the business. There was no real explanation. Whereas if I'd perhaps had, I don't know, um, a heart attack, or if I'd been out and had a baby, maybe people would have said, oh, she's had a quite serious heart attack, or she's having a baby and she's out of work for a couple of months or six months or however long a year. So it was really interesting. So I chose to, to, to be very open. And I just love the fact that when I started that conversation, as in, I've been off work because I've had some mental ill health uh, problems and I've been diagnosed and I'm just kind of working through what recovery looks like for me that people generally were sometimes quite shocked to have that conversation back then but most people really wanted to empathize or they would share their story or they'd tell me oh that happened to somebody they knew or their sister or their partner or their cousin or whoever it was so it was a real conversation and I thought why are we not talking about this more at work and this was sort of five and a half years ago which wasn't really in lots of sectors wasn't an industry wasn't an area people would talk about and it still isn't in lots of them but, it, but even back then it was very very new um, and just that was it I just left and set up what is now champs but back then for a few years it was just me like banging a drum about why people should talk about it at work and then around 2018 it started to grow even more and more people got interested I trained as a mental health first aider which I know you have those in the US like mental health uh, first aid responders and I came I came out to uh, California in 2019 actually one of our clients Expedia is based out there and in their head office in Seattle so I was out there and 2019, we just kind of grew sort of a, as a as a bigger company. So there's about 20 people now in that particular business. Um, and what we do is generally work with large corporates. So it tends to be bigger organizations um, in lots of different sectors. Um, we work in legal, in healthcare, in travel, um, all different sorts of finances, all different sorts of organizations. Um, and we're not just about delivering training, which is why I call us a mental wealth consultancy, because actually what we do is more holistic than that. We, we work with the leadership. We, we talk about culture change, about behaviors, because a training course is great, but what you do on one day, how does that influence the other 250 odd days that you're in the office? Um, so, you know, if, if you could look, be trying to look after yourself and putting lots of good well-being practices in place for you, but if your boss or manager doesn't understand that, you know, you've got all these pressures or they're contributing to that stress in a toxic way or the culture doesn't really encourage you to, have breaks as in you know finish at work and in the evening and not log on or not work at weekends if all of the time you know there's a, there's lots of different factors so really it's about having the whole organization engaged in that well-being conversation and well-being strategy and and that is what we do I love that I think <clears throat> looking at schools I see a lot of you know training trainings and resource sessions for students about well-being and how they can cope, but there's not a lot of education for the teachers about, you know, what they, what, what their part is in the situation. And I think just like in the workplace, it, it involves everyone. Everyone needs to be on board to make that culture shift and to really, you know, make an effort to change the conversation and the narrative. So I, I love that you address that, that it, it applies to everyone. Yeah. I wanted to shift gears a little bit because I know that some of your work involves trauma mm -hmm. and trauma research. I think it is a particularly relevant topic to discuss amidst a global pandemic. Could you please break down what trauma is um, and the different forms that it can take? 
I think that's something that's important to highlight. Okay, so trauma is um, when we've experienced something that shattered our assumptions, our beliefs. Um, Usually when we talk about a traumatic experience, the American Psychological Association talks about it from a perspective of trauma with a capital T. So, you know, if you think about murder, uh, a, a natural disaster, um, a car accident, um, a sexual assault, something, you know, with a with a big capital T, I like to call it. Mm-hmm. But trauma can come in many different forms. For example, trauma could be um, bullying, you know, bullying at school, bullying at the workplace. That could be a form of trauma. Um, having a toxic manager and working in an environment which you don't feel psychologically safe is is traumatic experiencing a redundancy losing your job could be traumatic you know what we've been going through with the pandemic is a collective trauma and everybody's experienced that very very differently but we've all been in the same position right like no one's been exempt from what's happened with the global pandemic like it's it's touched everybody on some level and some hugely and more deeply and the ramifications and after effects of that will be huge and some it will be less so but we've all had to adjust our lives in some in some way Mm -hmm. um so when we talk about the pandemic it has been this very much you know the the word unprecedented always used to be used a lot I think in 2020 because it was unprecedented in terms of a collective trauma that everybody on the earth would have experienced pretty much you know unless I guess you live somewhere really remote remote and never kind of follow the news or know anything about anything but there's always I guess you have those connections to communities where you will find you know so it will impact so I, I think it's it's been really interesting to understand I think this is why when we talk about mental ill health people who've had experience of mental ill health when the pandemic began it was feeling like well this is kind of my world usually but on a bigger scale this is kind of especially for somebody with anxiety for example this is what my life feels like most of you know lots of the time Mm -hmm. um I see I saw many things on social media where people were posting a welcome to my world because people some people would never have experienced on any level any kind of trauma maybe um so It is around as well, as I said, that shattered assumptions theory, that shattered assumptions beliefs that something's changed, something's impacted upon us to to, to break everything apart. Um, And you can have, um, you know, you, you have a trauma and then it's how you then move forwards from that trauma. So whether there is initial stress kind of uh, disorders that come on the back of that, they can be trauma that's then trapped in the I guess what how I want to describe it it's like trapped in the brain the memories are trapped in the brain which is where we see things like post-traumatic stress disorder Mm. so they can be lived out and that's why I think with the pandemic you know there'll be there'll be elements of of PTSD with what the research is saying there's going to be much more longer term effects of what we're doing yes we're dealing with the here and now but what does this have impact on down the line a year later, five years later, you know, 10 years later sort of thing. So. Right. And I think I've seen a lot of talk about post-traumatic growth um, Mm. following the pandemic. I was wondering if you could break this concept down and, you know, kind of the misconceptions surrounding it, because I know that people obviously heal and recover in different processes. And I think that you know, this assumption that, you know, we're just going to move on right after and everything's going to be fine and it's going to make us stronger <laughs> yeah. isn't necessarily realistic. It's not. I'm so glad you said that. And you know what? It was my thing last year because so many, you know, post-traumatic growth has been around in research now relatively, I guess, new. It's been around for a few decades or so in terms of evidence base. Um uh, and it does go right back to philosophers like uh, Nietzsche, who said, um, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Yeah, there's that phrase. So that's post-traumatic growth in, in, in a, you know, in some element of it. 
But um, everybody, all media, journalists were jumping onto, you know, all going to come out and you'd, you'd read in the magazine articles or online. Yay, post-traumatic growth. And there's just this real, that's a real toxic positivity around it because it's almost been used in that way. Like you say that it's okay, don't worry. We're all going to go back to normal or we'll all have learned things from this and it's going to be great. If we think about post-traumatic growth, what that is, is it's that we've shifted and we've reconfigured, we've shifted or changed in some way following an experience of trauma. So the, there is part of that is the healing process, of course. But usually what that also means is, you know, our philosophy in life will have changed, our meaning in life will have changed. Um, the relationships we have with ourselves and others will have changed. Now, it, it's really impossible to say that everybody who's been through at least that depth of trauma with the pandemic is everyone's going to fully come out of it feeling amazing as you said or really grateful that it's happened and, and that's that's also not what post-traumatic growth is about as well this misconception and myth that you you're happy you went through it the reason I got so fascinated about post-traumatic growth was because I identified that in myself only in the last year or so, in the last couple of years when I started researching this area and I'm really really new to research in this area but, um, you know, after after four years or so of going through what I went through, you know, it doesn't happen immediately. It's not like it's the next week. You know, there's, you've got to have a real time to that, I think, as well, in terms of, of understanding the outcome and the process of it. Because if you think about healing, healing takes time. But also what you need to be able to do with post-traumatic growth is, is almost do the work to heal. And the only way you can do the work to heal is if you have a great number of resilience factors in your corner, like um, you are able to access services, that you are not discriminated against, that you have a great support system, that you have a family or friendship network that you can afford to pay for treatment and recovery. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of resilience factors actually that really have to be in your corner sometimes to work through that growth as well. Um, and it depends on on where you are in your life as well. So not everyone's going to come out of a, a of kind of what we've experienced, feeling really grateful. Not everybody's going to come out thinking, "Oh, it's changed who I am," because some people just won't have the capacity, but also won't have the tools and resources to be able to do that. Um, especially if they're perhaps from, you know, groups of marginalised individuals who who don't have, you know, their, their risk factors are so much higher to access the right support. I think also there's this assumption that we're going to all move on so quickly when I think, you know, realistically people, it, some people it's going to take a while to readjust to how things were mm. before the pandemic. I think there's a lot of speculation um, surrounding, I mean, doing things that were once deemed ordinary I wanted to ask about re-experiencing trauma and the the signs that kind of signify this. So how can we distinguish these and how then can we respond to them? So if somebody's re-experiencing trauma or they feel they are re-experiencing trauma, the first port of call is always the primary care provider. If somebody has any of those signs or symptoms or a close friend or family member kind of notice that things things have changed right basically that person's altered in some way that there's something that that's not quite right you know encouraging that person to get the first and foremost the right professional support or help whether that's your we call them GPs but your doctor you know your medical doctors or whether it's a therapist or psychiatrist or just a, a, a mental health professional Re-experiencing trauma can come in so many different shapes and forms from um, it often coexists with other mental Ill health issues, conditions as well. So depression, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, self-harm. It can manifest in, um, in real sort of problems with sleep because trauma interrupts the circadian rhythm so people might find they have nightmares or night terrors or hallucinations or they're 
they don't want to go to sleep or they're, they're in, you know, feeling ins- insomniac. So they're not getting, you know, they can't go to sleep or they're sleeping too much. Um, it can come across as avoidance. So if somebody's had a traumatic experience in a particular location, sort of avoiding that, or if, for example, somebody had, um, you know, a, a car accident, for example, and then all of a sudden, you know, not wanting to travel in a car, you know, or whatever that might look like. So any kind of avoidance, it can also come across in kind of blurred vision, not listening uh, properly, you know, um, memory loss, kind of muddled thoughts, any sense around hypervigilance. Because basically, if we're thinking about if somebody's re-experiencing trauma, what we're talking about is their amygdala, that the kind of the prehistoric part of their brain being on kind of that high alert, you know, so whatever that looks and feels like when somebody's a bit like with, you know, what we've seen with the pandemic where we've had panic buying or we've had people feeling anxious about going outside or people being close to them or that all those feelings, but we automatically, you know, with our bodies kind of in that heightened sense of panic. So there's lots, you know, people will experience everyone. This is the hard thing around mental ill health, right? Or the brain in general is we all experience it so differently. Um, so if somebody, you know, they can be certain triggers for an individual that will, create that so if we look at um the hashtag me too campaign that was started in the us um you know we found here in the uk that there was such a high proportion of uh there was a huge sorry a high percentage of calls uh, of increase to our what's called our rape crisis charity during that time like it was it was really high i think the spike was somewhere between 25 and 30 percent from what i remember because people who'd experienced sexual assault before in the past were triggered by reading stuff in the media, it being all over the news, if you remember. It was just everywhere. You couldn't move for, for hearing about celebrities talking about it, people in the community talking about it. So often tri- re-experiencing trauma can come in forms of those triggers as well um, that you know may, may just come out. And, and that's also where we've seen, um, you know, in, here in the, the UK, when we're talking about, I guess, uh, re-experiencing mental illness, you know, the pandemic has triggered many people who've had um, experience of OCD before, especially with the hygiene and the hand washing um, rituals as part of that. And we've also seen, um, you know, a high increase of people really struggling who've been diagnosed with eating disorders before in the past as well during the pandemic. So there is situations can also I guess trigger those situations those senses in us you know there's stuff that's there that it is kind of popped back up Mm -hmm. I saw on Instagram actually you post about the four r's and their kind of relation to re-experiencing trauma so I was wondering if you could break those down and talk about how they connect to trauma because I thought that that was really interesting so the four R's of trauma-informed care. And when we're talking about being trauma-informed, this can apply to anybody because, you know, we were just chatting before about trauma doesn't have to be with a big capital T. I think it's such a scary word for lots of people because immediately we do think of really awful situations. And, and that's not taking away from smaller ones, but the, the idea around trauma is and being trauma informed is that they can be so they can be really kind of micro but after they built up over time that is what that person's experienced and when we're talking about trauma informed care we're talking about you don't have to be a um you know a, a, a doctor or a nurse it's it's about being a, an educator a teacher it's about being a manager in a law firm it's about being uh, you know a parent just being a bit more aware of understanding what trauma informed is um to kind of apply that so the first part is realizing which is or to realize and that is about realizing how broad trauma is and that pretty much is, is just what I was just talking about right it's not just the big things which are massively important of course but just the fact that it you know if you you know if I was your mum and you came home from school from school and you said you know there's somebody and they're they're really getting on me and 
I'm, you know, and I'm really struggling with it. And I just kind of dismiss it and just say, oh, they'll be fine. They'll, they'll get over it. They'll leave you alone eventually. And you're kind of like, hang on a minute. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like validating the fact that that's quite a difficult situation for you. Um, and also to understand if you have been through, for example, bullying, then understanding how you can work through that pathway to recovery from that or healing from that. Okay. And just, and there's whatever that process looks like. Um, R is for recognizing. So the signs and symptoms, and we've already talked a bit about this already, and they can come in so many different shapes and forms. I think the idea around when you're recognizing signs and symptoms on any level, not just trauma, but mental ill health is that, um, it's about a change in the person, you know, so it's about something that they're doing. And sometimes those signs and symptoms can initially be really small. Um, and after a while, but they might be really subtle. And that's really the best time to kind of start to check in with somebody. If you notice, you know, no clocking that something has changed in, in you. Um, responding is understanding how to respond to that individual. And, the way that I work as a coach um, and in my practice is that not one person is uh, the same as somebody. Everybody I work with is an individual. Yes, I've got different tools and techniques and different approaches of working with somebody, but there's different ways that I'd apply that because everybody's unique and everybody's background is completely unique to them as well. So recognizing that it's about listening. A lot of it's about listening and understanding what that person's going through, giving them some, um, giving them some affirmation that what they're experiencing is, it sounds really awful. It sounds pretty rubbish. Um, and then reflecting back the language, understanding if I've understood you correctly, you know, um, before the phrase is seeking to understand before being understood. So really kind of focusing on that as well. And and then kind of checking in with you, is this, is this right? What I've understood and, and really building on that knowledge, because I think that's really important when we're responding to trauma, we're not just taking, oh, this is what I did with somebody else. Therefore, it's going to apply exactly the same to you, Lauren. You know, it's about you're a person in your own right. Um, and especially when we're talking about signs and symptoms are so different and experience is so different. Um, so that's really important. And the last R is uh, resist re-traumatization. We've just spoke about kind of re-traumatization. Um, and this is a preventative and systemic approach to care. So again, if it's not necessarily about avoiding those situations, but actually building somebody up in a way that works for their healing process at their own rate and time and what that looks like for them. So for example, um, I might have been bullied at school or at work and I might have been out of that environment for a period of time whilst I'm working through that and then I might have to go back into that environment and maybe the first few times I go there I'm not going straight through the front door maybe I drive up there I drive around and then come back you know it's about building on that recovery process it's it's those baby steps and I always see it as like climbing those climbing a stair so you have a goal and you have somebody at the bottom and usually if I'm working with somebody it's okay well where do you want to get to and how are you going to what is your process um so I'm working with a particular I'm working with a coaching client at the moment who works in the humanitarian aid sector. So they're out in the field in the refugee camps area. Um, And there's certain, there's a certain situation that that person feels is going to be too much for them right now um, to put themselves into as a leader. And we've said, right, well, how do we get you to that position and what are the baby steps we're going to do to, and, you know, we've had a situation that's gone really, really well for them. And there's so many positives and they feel their amygdala in their brain is the dial is turned right down and it's really good. So it's actually about building on some of those ones to get them to where they need to be in that 
top end because they're working in a very traumatic, you know, traumatic environment. Mm -hmm. And I love that there's an emphasis on how to help others as well, because I think when it comes to mental health, I see a lot of things on Instagram and, you know, all around the media about how you can help yourself, how you can cope. But I think there's not as much talk about how we can help our peers and our family members that are struggling with mental illness. So I think that's a great way to kind of break it down and think about it in a, in a way that makes sense. And that's, you know, simple to think about. Mm-hmm. I wanted to move to breakdowns and burnouts because I think, I mean, two different things, but I um, have certainly experienced this during the pandemic over the last year. And I, I've kind of become more curious about them and what they're derived from. I think a lot of people, just like with the term panic attack, a lot of people, you know, throw these things around saying, I'm having a mental breakdown, da, 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 without actually knowing what it means, mm. which can often be harmful, just like, you know, with anxiety, I'm so anxious, I'm so stressed without actually maybe having a diagnosis or really understanding what that, mm. what that, illness, what that concept means. So I think, you know, just for everyone, what, what are breakdowns and burnouts and what do they stem from? Okay. Language, you've touched like the nail on the head there about language is so, so complex when it comes to talking about mental health, because we don't have a shared vocabulary to work from. Mm -hmm. Um, I described to you at the start that when I had my breakdown, I called it a meltdown because when I have a really serious panic attack, I literally look like the Wicked Witch from the West in The Wizard of Oz, where she's like, I'm melting. And that's kind of my reference point. So that's why I've always called them meltdowns. I would never dream, for example, of saying to you, oh, my God, Lauren, you had a meltdown. Like, it sounds so derogatory, right, or kind of really Mm -hmm. condescending. Um, So I would never use that unless somebody, again, going back to what I said about language and reflecting back what I heard, unless you said to me, oh, Ruth, I'm, you know, I'm having these meltdowns. I would never use that language with you unless you'd used it first. Um, And I would never correct your language either. So if you said to me, Ruth, I'm having meltdowns, I wouldn't say, oh, so you're having panic attacks because they may not be panic attacks. They may be panic attacks. But again, it's it's you are you are the expert of your own symptoms. Right. You know, that's the most important thing when it comes to client work and person centered work. Um, so there is this idea that we use, especially, you know, I think when I teach anything around uh, mental health first aid or anything around trainings or workshops, you know, it's always the difference between we all have the capacity to be anxious and we all know what that looks like because it keeps us alive. Basically, if we didn't have it, we'd all be dead. We need that instilled into us. It's from prehistoric times we, you know, it's our basic fight, flight, freeze response. Um, there's a difference between that and then understanding the continuum of where we get to anxiety disorders. Um, mm-hmm. And the same when, you, you know, you use the language about being stressed, but the same as well about, um, you know, people go, oh, I'm so depressed. Well, right. is it clinical depression or do you have a low mood, which still can be really rubbish and it can be really awful and you feel you know, well, for a few weeks, maybe, or a week or so, and you, you know, maybe you're crying a little bit or a bit emotional and that's okay. Like, but I think we try and how society is now, and you, you know, you said about Instagram, you know, how society is now we try and often everything's going to be great and wonderful a bit like you were saying about with the pandemic and let's move through it and everything will be great actually it might be really awful right now and that's also okay we have to experience both sides of life otherwise you know that's life it's it's complex it's messy and it's hard unfortunately but it's the only time we can really then appreciate the good things and the special moments and when we feel content and peace and joyous and grateful and all those other spectrum of emotions so um I think this I've really learned to not correct people but in a way you know I mean oh you don't do you mean that or you know are you sure you mean that 
uh, you know, some people use language as well, like, oh, they're so bipolar or they have a, you know, oh, I'm so OCD with my desk. I always call people out on that behavior because I'm like, actually, you're using a mental health condition inappropriately. And it's not often that person's fault. Like, they're not doing it intentionally to be harmful or hurt anyone. They're just doing it with the language we hear in society and what we hear on in TV, on movies, you know. Um, so I always do that correction piece. Um Burnout is one that people often think is a mental health condition. It's not. It's actually classified um, under ICD-11, which is the International Classification of Diseases. It's classed as um, a workplace occupational phenomenon. So it's an occupational phenomenon. And burnout has three different areas to it. It has what we know as um, stress or anxiety or depression. So that's part of it. It has um, withdrawal or disengagement is part of it. Or we can also see it as um, somebody who's lacking self-efficacy. So their confidence is completely gone. So something that you would be really good at normally, you could do with your eyes closed is really, really difficult for you, you know, because you've just lost all your confidence and ability to do that well. So that's kind of how burnout shows because we're we're often very it's, sometimes it can be a combination of all those three areas but if you think about we're so exhausted or we're just not engaged I think lots of you know I've seen so much burnout in the lockdown especially even the start of this year I think where people here in the UK where we're into the third lockdown situation where people are just the, the the demands on them from both family and work and then not having the ability to do their self-care and also combined with the trauma and the anxiety of the situation has just got people really really into that strain and crisis zone so but that's burnout and then breakdown you know, we, we used to talk about it in the olden days as like nervous breakdowns, um, kind of, I guess, where your nervous system would just be shot <laughs> to pieces, really. And I think, you know, break a mental breakdown could be where you're talking about somebody who, um, you know, might be having impatient stays in hospital or they're just really unwell and they may have then a diagnosis of, I think breakdown is where that almost is that that point you know I can pinpoint that particular that time for me when I was like yep that's that's where it was um but then there was the diagnosis that came after that um so for me I feel it's more of a just that situation that presents itself um you know where people just kind of sadly just you know I think whenever I've spoken to anybody and they've said I've experienced a breakdown it's been more around they've just become really unwell mentally and whether they've gone on to have a formal diagnosis of a mental health condition or not or they've just been in that real real difficult awful low period for so long that it's been so overwhelming for them. I had a couple of things to say in response to what you said because you gave such a great answer but um the first thing I was going to say was when you were talking about, you know, throwing around these terms without actually knowing the meaning or just because that's what we hear, that's the language that we're immune to in society. I think, you know, when correcting or, you know, having a conversation about it, it's not to invalidate that person's experiences in any way. Um, it's just to make sure that we are being, you know, sensitive to the actual mental illnesses that people are diagnosed mm. with because it's a real thing that has a big impact on people. So um, I love that you said that. And also your point about burnout this year and during the pandemic, I certainly um, saw a lot of, I guess, optimism coming into this new year, 2021. And I think people set a lot of resolutions for themselves like they did in any, in any year, um, assuming that we would all be done with the <laughs> yeah. pandemic in a couple of months. We're just going to go away. And I think, you know, obviously I, people get tired and for good, for good reason, it's such a hard time that we're, we're experiencing that we are, we're continuing to go through. And so I've, I've certainly seen a lot of, you know, lack of motivation and people just losing confidence in their ability to do things because times aren't changing. And, you know, they kind of went in with this expectation this year that they would. Um, 
So I have another question kind of mm. pandemic related. It's actually, it was what I was hitting at earlier, but then I lost my train of thought. So I'm going to come back to it. So, uh, you know, as stressful and anxiety provoking as the pandemic and lockdown have been, um, I think most people by now have kind of established some semblance of a routine and, you know, that that's happened at different paces and different rates for everyone. But I think it's definitely going to be, you know, looking at my schedule in the next coming months and, you know, going back to school and how these things are going to play out. I think it's going to be a huge readjustment, reintegrating Mm. into what our lives used to look like. So how can we cope with anxiety and potential fear surrounding this reintegration process? It's a really, really hard one, isn't it? Because we went into lockdown as you did in the US and it all was like, oh my goodness, this is really unnatural, you know, in spring last year. And then we kind of adjusted to it, right? We had, I don't know about uh, where you are in, in California, but we had, you know, in the UK, there was really a lifting of restrictions over the summer, um so we were able to kind of move around a little bit more freely but it was still there was still kind of you know people weren't going back into offices really you know all all our business work still happened online um and then we went into another lockdown then another lockdown and so basically you find you're right you find a new routine and people have had to adjust and I think the in the UK we had like a very tiny small percentage of people like five percent that work from home before the pandemic and now that's like 55 or more percent um so you've had a huge shift in people and also people having to couple that with you know if they've got children or teenagers or homeschooling as well um and factoring all that in so and our self-care change you know I'm a gym person or I like to go to studio classes they've all been closed you know if I've been doing stuff online like everybody else but you know it's just not the same and um when we look at forming habits there was a really influential study and that was done and it takes roughly about on average you know it can take up to two about 200 and um 222 something like that days to form a habit but average is about 66 days. So if you're thinking a couple of months, I mean, that's what we've adjusted to, right? So I think there's a couple of things as we come out of the easing of lockdown restrictions. And I definitely felt that. So we had our announcement last week by our prime minister saying, this is the roadmap. This is how we're going to kind of come out of the pandemic based on the data and the science. And if everything stays as it is and continues to progress in the right way, but I felt really overwhelmed and I haven't seen my family since September. And I'm really excited and I cannot wait to see my family. And I've got a new nephew who's born in December, still not seen him. But, you know, like I'm really nervous about kind of what things look like back in normal. I don't really want to go back. You know, part of me is excited to want to go and spend time with people, but I'm also, I've got a routine now and this is my life now as well because we adjust. And that's the wonderful thing about being human. I mean, it's why we've survived longer than any other species is that, we, we adapt and we evolve, right? And even when things are really hard, we come through it um, and we change. And we've done that again. And I think change also is a big stressor to the brain. You know, it's, you know, kind of finding new ways and those behaviors. So, and you're right. I don't think there will be, we, we're not suddenly going to go back to what it was like February or January, 2020. It's going to be a different version of it. So you know, maybe people in offices won't be in offices full time. They'll be back in one or two days a week. So what do they do with our other amount of time? Do they still work from home? Do they find other spaces to work? Like, There's going to be a real adjustment. And I think that creates a lot of anxiety for people, especially considering everything that we've been through. You know, we've seen, as you have in the US, you know, numbers of deaths that we can't really even compute now because they're so, so big, those numbers. And we know there's vaccines and that's wonderful. And that's, that's great, but there's still fear, you know, there'll be people who are really fearful of still being able to to catch COVID or pass it on even more so to others in their families uh, or friends. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's, there's naturally going to be this anxiety. And I think it's about going back to, 
what I try to do or what I've tried to do the whole lockdown process is what is in my control? Like, what can I control? What can't I control? Okay, so what are the things that I can invest my time and energy into? And what things do I have to work on letting go? There's a bit of like acceptance commitment training there around figuring out I'm carrying all this worry and burdens and anxiety with me, but actually there's some of it that's really why am I still working with that like I need to let it go I think there's probably a really good Instagram meme of somebody like walking up a hill carrying loads of boulders of you know different emotions and really why are we carrying that baggage around with us let's actually just focus on what is in our control you know I don't think and there's you know as you will have seen you know um, especially here in the UK there's there's lots of memes and social media posts about June the 21st which is when apparently everything should be to a sense of normal again like everything's going to be open and people partying and going out and I'm like the last place I want to be is really out with loads of people getting drunk on the 21st of June <laughs> so I, I think that was a trigger in me as well I was like oh like uh, and I put something on Instagram and so many people actually dm'd me and went I'm so good. And these were all different people, different ages, you know, um, different backgrounds, men, women, um, messaging me saying, I'm so glad, like, you're not the only one. Like, I feel like this too. And I think that was just a reassuring to go. It's not like I'm not excited or I'm not pleased, but I'm also, I think it's probably more cautious and just what does that look like for me in my world? (laughs) um because there's a big roadmap but that's for everybody in the UK right so actually when it boils down to it what does that mean for me how does that look and feel for me like you've got to interpret it with your own lens I think right I think that's I mean I've really had to realize and come to terms with is that I can experience and feel different emotions and they can entirely contradict one another (laughs) but that's you know part of being it's part of being human like you said I'm excited to see friends and larger groups of people and family that I haven't seen, but I'm also, I'm worried and I don't want to lose part of my routine that I've established. Like I've, you know, gained some, I don't know, I've, I've definitely enjoyed some aspects of this terrible time. Um, So I think that's something that, you know, I've had to realize that's okay. I can experience these different emotions and that's, you know, entirely, validated I think it's normal I think everyone's going through that in some way or another and I love what you say there I think that's really important is those small nuggets of positivity because to survive and to to kind of get through what we've been through you have to have had looks for those to keep you going and you know there's definitely aspects you know I moved house in lockdown one because I didn't want to be stuck in London and I moved to the coast um right down south in the UK I was living in London in a small flat with just like no view no and I'd got great office and space and light and I was like this was the best decision ever and it just so happened I'd never even been I couldn't even come and look around like I just took this place and I was like oh my god like it was the best thing, you know, I've never felt more at home in this place, but it was just really lucky. But I was like, do you know what? It actually prompted me to make a really big decision because I was like, if this is it, like, I'm not staying here. I'm going to find something that I really, maybe I would never have done that. You know, if, if work had carried on and traveling into London every day for work and, you know, traveling overseas where I spent a lot of time overseas or I did in 2019, that mm-hmm. I would never have thought oh, I really need to have a, a, a really nice office space at home. And I'm really privileged and fortunate that I could do that. But, you know, that was also a bit of a an opportunity that has come out of this. And, you know, I've got a new community of friends and I got into sea swimming and there's just little things that actually that I would never have done if it had been locked, you know, if lockdown hadn't come along ever. Yeah, I completely agree. I think Cooper, who's my co-founder, I think we talk about that a lot, you know, would the Thrive Initiative even exist no. if the pandemic started? Right. So I think focusing on those things um, can really make a huge impact. You know, getting to I'm I'm lucky enough to be with my family, so I think being able to spend more time with them rather than just be out all day is is super nice. Um, so on this kind of subject of positivity, <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about positive psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a term that 
we often hear about, but we don't necessarily know or understand the meaning of. So what is positive psychology and how does it work? Okay. So positive psychology has been around now for um, a few decades. Um, Marty Seligman is is supposedly the grandfather of positive psychology, and he was a president of the American Psychological Association and made an address um, when he... he, um, when he started as as chairperson, I think that was the, the right phrase, um, and, and basically was talking about, you know, we always focus as psychologists what's not going well, and we need to start actually what's uh, sorry, what's you know what's broken, what needs to be fixed, you know, mental ill health pathology. Let's focus on what. Why do we focus on what is going well and how we can flourish and thrive? And mm. I just really loved the fact that there is such a a, a real science, and it. it positive psychology takes lots of different elements from other types of psychology, you know, humanistic psychology, as well as clinical psychology. And it it's interwoven into those. Um, it stands on its own at the moment as a ology, if you like, but I think it, over time, what the research and evidence is there will kind of fit into broader psychology as well. So it, and I think in the early days, it was very much seen as like a happyology. I think where people just thought it was about, you know, I want to say rainbows and unicorns, but you know what I mean? Like just, oh, everything's going to be positive all the time. It's all about hope or optimism, which it is, and gratitude. And gratitude is actually one of the biggest researched positive psychology interventions um, out of all of them. But what I love is that when positive psychology almost had this second wave, um, or it has second wave, which was very much focused around what was called the dark side of positive psychology. So that's where I actually got interested in it when I was studying my MSc, because it was about trauma. And actually the fact, like I said to you, we have to go through the dark side and the tough times to appreciate the light side. And sometimes we, with the most difficult situations, we do thrive, as you, you know, we've just spoke about, and we find those nuggets and, um, things change or we have to really dig within ourselves and there's this idea of a you know Marty Seligman talks about this positive health and when we're talking about you know our overall mental well-being we're talking not just about physically how we feel you know cognitively how we feel but also our emotions and feelings and being kind of that positive health and part of that is also thinking about living what is a meaningful life you know if we're, we're getting to the real this positive psychology is not as well just about doing all those um hedonistic kind of pleasurable things that make us feel warm and fuzzy so drinks with friends or you know a new car or a nice holiday or whatever those yes they give us that sense of um you know positivity but actually when we talk about a more meaningful life we're really digging into kind of um how we're showing up in the world what you know what's what's our philosophy what's our values how do we work within those value systems you know how do we give back to society what is our purpose um which is kind of why I'm really interested in doing that side of studying as part of my doctorate in this in the autumn in the fall um so yeah, it's and and it's just so broad now. You know, there's so many different facets to positive psychology, and in particularly the MSc that I studied was applied positive psychology. So it was it's actually and and also coaching psychology. So as a coach, um, actually doing research, evidence based research as a coach, um, and provide and writing those studies, but also as an applied positive psychology practitioner, using those tools and um, um, interventions and using them in workplaces or with clients one-to-one. And so it it becomes very practically applied as well to somebody. Um, But yeah, it's, it's just fascinating because just as you think you've got your head around it all, there's just so much more to learn. And, but I think that's the beauty of it because it's, it's such a new area of research that, you could you know there's so many different areas as well that you could kind of delve into but I love what I really like is that it's not just about about the positive it's also about the darker side as as it's called and for me that was a a real draw and often confuses people when they say so you're positive psychology but you work you're really interested in trauma Mm -hmm. but that I think that is what makes it so fascinating. I completely agree thank you for breaking it down because 
like you said, I think there's a big misconception that it's just about the rainbows and unicorns or just, you know, about, about the positive aspects when yes, that is a part of it, but it's not the whole, it's more nuanced than that. I have two last questions for you and they're kind of, they're quicker ones, but um, I have heard you mention the term mental wealth. And I was wondering, did you coin this term and what is the meaning significance behind it? Cause I really like it and I'm curious about it. So I coined it for Shams, uh, my business, but and we have a trademarked My Mental Wealth um, program. So we, we have that as part of what we do. But people, other people use it. I, I liked it. Or I, for me, it was important because it fused together two things, mental health, which people often think is about illness still, and well-being. Um, so it, can, it kind of fused those two together. And well-being, as we know, is so personal. If I ask you what your definition of well-being is, it might be very different to mine because it is very holistic or wellness as well. Those two words are used interchangeably sometimes uh, and people have different um, definitions of those. But I love the fact with mental wealth, and maybe this is because I spent time in investment banking, but mental wealth is about you have to invest in yourself. Like it doesn't just happen. The same as if you wanted to run a marathon, right? Um, you're not suddenly going to, maybe you'd be silly enough to do it, but maybe you, you wouldn't, but just kind of get up and run 20, uh, what is it, 40 something kilometers in, um, in kilometers, but 20, 26.4 miles. You're not going to, you're not going to do that without any training. You have to invest in your training. You have to build it up slowly. You have to eat right. You have to get the right running shoes. You have to get some kit. You, you might have a, you might do some cross training. You might have massages. There's all these different things that you can do. Um, and the same with mental wealth, like our mental fitness, you have to invest in it. You have to find, and maybe you go, do you know what? I can't run a marathon. I'm going to run a half marathon. I'm going to do a 10 K or whatever it is. I'm going to change it up. So it changes. And that's kind of like our mental fitness, you know, it, then the program changes and mental wealth also has to always change because a, the world changes, i.e. pandemic, we change, we get older, or our life changes, we might have kids, we might go to college, we might start work, you know, we might have move in with a partner, you know, there's different things where actually we, it, it throws things up in the air, and we have to, we talked about routines and readjusting, um, you know, so if you suddenly move in with somebody, maybe they really eat unhealthily. So you want to start looking at kind of working on that. Or maybe they start going out running in the morning. You say, oh, I might join you on that because I really enjoy coming out with you two mornings a week. So you do that together. And so everything changes and evolves, but you have to invest in it. It doesn't just, it just doesn't magically happen. And, and hope some of us are really fortunate. We have an ability to keep ourselves, I guess, at a certain level, but what positive psychology, going back to your last question, positive psychology is all about really about how we get people to flourish and thrive. Okay. So I can do the bare minimum and just be, I guess, which is okay. And that's not a problem, but if I really want to flourish in life and I really want to thrive and I really want to live my best life and be, bring everything with meaning and passion, then I have to invest in that. Like that isn't going to happen automatically. Right. That makes, that makes complete sense. And I like how you, you know, tied it to the analogy of running a marathon, because that's something that we can all kind of, maybe if we can't understand, I can't understand it entirely. Cause I, I have never run a marathon probably. Won't. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't do it. I'm starting to train for another one soon. And I'm oh, like, uh, Oh wow. Good for you. But I can certainly picture it. So yeah. I think that's, that's helpful <laughs> and tying that to, you know, mental health and well-being and investing in yourself, the different steps you need to take. So on the subject of this, um, Cooper and I have made it a tradition as final question to ask all of our guests what their favorite, you know, in the time being, um, what their favorite self-care practice is at the moment. So I was wondering, um, what what is your favorite self-care practice? What has really helped you through this, this time of the pandemic and quarantine lockdown? Two things. One, running, genuinely. Um, but then I fractured my foot in the first lockdown because I did do too much running. So it just shows you that too much of a good thing is not good for you, right? Um, and then when I moved, I moved to be, and I'm literally right on the coast here, and it's not like being um, 
in California, like a nice beach anywhere else in where you're from, but it's uh, <laughs> for sure. It's, uh, it's, it's okay, but I'm literally right on the coast and I learned to open water swim um, in the Thames estuary, which sounds gross, I know, but it is, it is okay. It is clean. Um, and through that, because I moved over the summer last year, I met a community of people who I would not have met through sea swimming, open water swimming, and they became friends. And these are people that I've only known, you know, maybe a few months, but we've got a shared passion. So it brings us together. And that in itself is what I think has been the most beautiful part. That's so wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Um, and just thank you for joining me today. I had such a great time talking with you. I learned so much and I know we covered a lot of different things and you have so much wisdom and insights to offer. So I'm just so happy to be able to talk with you and have this time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Thrive Podcast. We'll see you soon. With love, the Thrive Initiative. Thrive.